Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Ashley, right Mac is in the house. Did I say that your last name right, Mac? Absolutely. Yeah, Ashley Mac. Okay, Thanks good. for having me. Um, yeah, man, I appreciate your time. Appreciate you being here. Um, just a quick little rundown on you. We'll start diving in here. But uh, you're a doctor of physical therapy. Uh, I saw that you have your collegiate strength and conditioning certification, which applaud that, man. I know that's a tough one to get or when I was stu- was studying, I never took the test, but I studied for it. Um, you're also, we just found out, CrossFit coach, man. Have you always uh, had this, like, athletic kind of fitness passion or uh, since day one of your birth? Or is this just something you fell into? Or t- Tell me, what's the story? What's the story? How did I get in all in- involved with all this athletic stuff? Uh, well, I guess, like, with any – I grew up in the Jersey suburbs. And growing up in the Jersey suburbs, it's, like, perfect – you know, sports weather, I guess everything, every, every area is like perfect sports weather, depending on where you're living. And this is like typical kid, like who wanted to just, just like play any other sport. But the big thing was the fact that any land sport that I do, I'm actually not coordinated at all. And I never really liked not being good at something. So I was always just trying to find some sort of physical activity that I wanted to do. And going into that, I found swimming. So pretty much like it all started the fact that I just didn't like not being good at something. So I just continued to find some sort of like physical activity that I happened to be pretty decent with. Okay. And then I got involved with swimming. And then when I actually had the opportunity to swim in college, um, I swim at Villanova. And then once I retired from swimming, I was like, all right, I got to do something else. And I, then I found CrossFit. So it wasn't from the moment that I was born, but it was just something that I found to be really fun. And hopefully, like most people, I like to just pursue fun things. Of course, yeah. Who who doesn't? So, uh, so how did you get your start in swimming? Was that just you, did your parents do it before you, or is it just something you found and decided just to dive head first in? No pun intended, but. I like that. So I, um, oops, sorry. I dropped it. Um, <laughs> so there was a local swim team in our town, uh, and I was taking swim lessons and I didn't even know that swimming was a competitive sport. And then as I started to get a little bit better, felt a little more confident, saw that there was a local swim team and I knew nothing about competitive swimming, but again, it was something along the lines of, I, I just happened to be pretty okay at it. And I said, Oh, I, I want to try out for the swim team. I, I, again, going into this, not really knowing what to expect. The first time I tried out for the swim team, I was like, I don't know, 11 years old. They, I swam so slow that they actually didn't allow me to join the swim team. And then once they told me that they didn't like, once they told me that I was too slow, I was like, well, that can't be. So then I spent the next year, doing swim lessons so I can like be a competitive swimmer did tryouts again, made the team. And then from there I was like, okay, I think this is my end. And then I was just doing swimming 
it was like an activity that I just enjoyed doing because uh, if not, I would be sitting on my butt every day uh, playing video games, which I still do. I, but I also just am physically active to meet the, you know, meet my activity levels um, with that. And then I wasn't actually even thinking about swimming in college until my senior year of high school, my senior year of high school, I was like, Oh, wait a minute. I got I have to apply to college. <laughs> and then like, and then also I like purposely didn't visit any colleges because you only visit like in high school, you'd visit colleges on the weekends. Right. Mm-hmm. And all my weekends were filled with swim meets. And when I didn't have a swim meet, all I wanted to do was sleep. So here comes my senior year of high school. And I'm like, I need to apply to college, but I have no idea where I want to go. Right. So then I just applied to a couple of different schools. And then I, I, I got accepted to Villanova and uh, I saw that I was actually able to compete there. So I reached out to the coach and he said, come, come on down and swim for us. And that, and that, and the rest is history. Got the opportunities from college. What was your uh, what was your event? I don't know a lot about swimming, but I know maybe the vague oh. term, but uh, maybe that's not the right word. But yeah, so, what, so I just know certain events. But I couldn't tell you anything more, really. Yeah, so my event um, was freestyle. It was a freestyle specialist, so it's like the crawl stroke, and I would do pretty much uh, what is considered mid distance to long distance. So uh, a two hundred meter. Uh, a 200 meter race to a 1600 meter race, um, which ranges anywhere between like a minute and 45 to like an 11 minute race. So um, I actually like getting like freestyle, like my freestyle background and plus like my endurance background transitioning into a sport like CrossFit. Like it was pretty, like it was pretty easy to transition, especially with like the long engine chipper workouts. Like you give me, like the triple three workout, which was like the CrossFit games event from like 2015. Like I will eat that up all day. I love, that's like my favorite workout, but you end up giving me like a heavy barbell, like heavy to me. Like, like you do, like give me something like a workout, like DT, I will die. I would literally just get buried by that barbell. I understand. So I'm like pretty proud that I have a pretty decent engine. But man, when you when you throw something heavy, I, I think that that that'll be the end of me. So we'll get we'll get into physical therapy and stuff later. But uh, so and also I, I'm a gamer too. Well, not as much as I used to, but I like to play games too. But anyway, we'll talk about that later. So <laughs> doing all this long distance swimming that built your engine up, obviously. So as far as training in college for swimming, I guess and you said you know a barbell might be a weakness for you. Was that not part of? Uh, I guess you're, I guess swimmers would do strength and conditioning training just as much as any other sport in college. I just don't know a lot about it or, but, but it was that kind of part of it that y'all were just made. To, yeah. Hey, we want, um, we want your endurance. We don't need you to pick up 205 power for DT 155. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, strength and conditioning was a part of our program to like keep us healthy. Um, I think one of the challenges is the the fact that um, strength and conditioning in the swimming world is still uh, relatively new. Um, we used to think back in the day, like in the swimming world, like for you to get better, like faster at swimming, um, you just have to swim more. So we would end up just swimming more volume after volume, which is why I ended up building such a great engine. When we would go to the weight room, I would actually do some barbell stuff like presses, bench press, back squats, like, which was, which was like all right and cool, but I wasn't very strong. And, um, it was also, we would lift early in the morning. We would like go to the weight room at 6am because that was the only time available for the swimmers. And as an adult now, like if I wake up at five, like I'm ready to go, like I'm a morning person now as an adult, but when I was in college, I never, like the only reason why I would wake up early in the morning would be to eat breakfast after swimming, like after some practice, like that was, that was the reason that's the, that was the reason why I got up, um, for morning practice. It wasn't because swimming in the morning was like my fat, like I I was never fast. I was never awake in the morning. Mm -hmm. And so I think that also had a huge impact where 
like I didn't really know how to do much. And I actually ended up hurting myself in the weight room in college. And that like really wrecked me. And the only time where I felt no pain was when I was swimming. And I was like, there, there, I was like, there, there's something wrong with me. So you were swimming in college. You just said you got hurt in the weight room. Now, is this what led you down the road to physical therapy or was it something else? Yeah. Um, kind of, kind of like twofold. I actually had the opportunity to pursue an accelerated physical therapy program, um, straight out of high school. So the, the program that I, uh, registered for enrolled with, it was three years undergraduate at Villanova university. And then in three years, I would have graduated early with my bachelor's. And then I was able to pursue my doctorate right after that three years post-grad. And I applied for physical therapy school in high school. Um, it seemed like a, it seemed like a cool profession at the time. But then when I got hurt in college, I said, man, I really like, I need to know this so I don't get hurt ever again. And then I also really enjoy helping people. So I was like, all right, well, how can I help people to the best of my ability? And I said, oh, well, I'm already in this physical therapy program. Let me just help people not live in pain and help them recover from their surgeries, their falls and doing all the other physical therapy things that are, uh, that are important when it comes to injury and rehab recovery. I'm glad you said that, that, I mean, I've never had to do, or I guess lucky enough, I've never had to go to physical therapy yet in my life. I'll, I'll say yet. Um, I would guess. Knock on wood. Yeah. I was going to say, I've been pretty fortunate, but I've heard horror stories and different things that people go see a physical therapist and they've never even picked up a barbell in their life or this is probably coming from more of the CrossFit community too, but I don't even know about more like collegiate athletes, but yeah, they've never really been an athlete in their life, but they're a physical therapist. And that would, to me is that you can relate better to the person and help them with their recovery. If you actually know, okay, what is their sport? Where do I need to start them at? How do I get them to point A to point B to point whatever? Uh, well, I mean, why is that? Is that just something that just they think physical therapy is a good profession to go into? Which I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it is based on what I've read. But uh, or is it just their kind of like your background? Just hey, man, I want to help others, just like you said. I think one one big misconception about physical therapy is that they like when people think physical therapy, they think like they think about physical therapy clinic where people go like um, to like rehab from an injury. So like, say, for example, they hurt themselves in a CrossFit gym. Um, sorry, not just the CrossFit, but any gym, any sort of physical activity, sure. even just like sitting in an office. Right. But sure. uh, what's interesting is that the physical therapy profession is a very wide profession because you have various different settings. So the most popular, the most often, the most visual you'll see is the physical therapy clinic, but you will have uh, physical therapists in the hospital, um, which uh, is an entirely different setting. Um, whereas when you're in an outpatient clinic, which is a typical physical therapy setting, you're getting people out of pain so they can get back into working out and exercising and just going about their day normally. But then if you're looking at the physical therapy setting in the hospital, you're having people coming out of fresh out of surgery, whether it be like a knee replacement and they just need to need to learn how to walk. Mm -hmm. Um, or someone who's coming out of, uh, uh, heart surgery after like a stroke, uh, sorry, heart surgery after like a heart attack or anything. Like they just need to get up out of bed, monitor their heart rate, um, through that. And, that's kind of like the, those are like the unseen heroes from the physical therapy world, because without them, those clients wouldn't actually get out to like do the normal day activities, which would require the services from say like an outpatient setting. So um, I, I think for, for me, what got me into physical therapy was like, I like sports, I like science and I like helping people. Um, those were like the three qualifying standards for me that got me into PT school. Um, I think also, uh, people who might not necessarily have an athletic background had the opportunity to see the impact across the entire spectrum of the physical therapy world. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, so let's say that do – you, do you watch UFC at all? Uh, did you watch the fight last night? Or not last night. When was it? Saturday night. 
Conor McGregor. Um, I saw highlights of last okay. night. I saw highlights of last night. See I, um, McGregor. Uh, Saturday, we... Um, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, I thought I interrupted you. I, I was just going to say that... Uh, I was just going to... You know, McGregor completely broke his ankle Saturday night. And I guess that's the biggest highlights. So I was going to say that somebody... Like that, I think he had a surgery today or yesterday. I don't really remember that part. But now, obviously, he's going to have to need physical therapy just to get him himself going, right? So, I mean, what would be the point for you to to come in for him? You for you? Oh, that's my dog's barking. For you to assess him and say, "All right, this is where we're going to be the start." A <laughs> now, what do we do to get you back on your feet if he wants to fight again? Yeah. I um I, I only saw like the moment his ankle broke. I didn't see what like led up to everything, That's but apparently he was taking a whole yeah. bunch of like leg checks. Um, yeah. Um, but man, I saw that fracture. I was like, okay, so uh, he probably ended up getting um, some pins in his ankle or his leg, um, and he's going to be immobilized for probably at least six weeks, um, depending on the procedure, depending yeah. on like. Depending on the, the level of surgery, some people can get those plates and then they can start bearing weight pretty much immediately. Some people require a little bit more time. Um, the, the first priority is like once he's out of his boot is being able to just bear weight through it. Um, what's interesting about the human body is that it remembers any sort of specific trauma. And so all, automatically you have this trauma and then you have the muscles and all the tissues just a little bit weaker but the brain remembers that. So we have to really condition the nervous system, um, the mind body connection to be able to actually like formally take weight on that leg. Um, and being able to just, uh, reduce swelling, improve range of motion, um, earlier on the rehab standpoint, he's probably going to be spending a fair amount of time in a boot slash cast. Um, and then he's going to want to start moving his ankle around a little bit more, um, and uh, be, being in the CrossFit world, you're probably seeing like the banded ankle work that most people do, like before, like a heavy squat day or something like that. Um, the banded work that you'll see in like those end range stretches and like ankle mobility stuff, that high level that you would see at a CrossFit gym, that's probably closer to like the 12 to 16 week mark. Um, right now, we're just um, at that point, like between like post-op day one to week 12, it's like managing swelling, improving active and improving range of strength and on that. Um, there's a huge debate in actually the physical therapy world on why this ankle fracture happened in the first place. Hmm. Some people who aren't necessarily the most well-versed in, in, in MMA I uh, don't understand the necessary demands on what could be happening in a fight. So they're like, oh, well, that like uh, there were weak uh, hip hip stabilizers resulting in a significant pronating aspect. Like there, there's there's a lot of different things. But ultimately, the the big piece is that like moving forward, like we just got to if, if he is going to be returning back into fighting, it's like got to get him back onto the mat. Um, but the good news also on top of that, because it's his ankle and this is something I actually got from CrossFit was the fact that like with CrossFit being infinitely scalable, right? We have four limbs of our body. If someone were to break one limb, they have three other limbs that they can train mm -hmm. and they also have their heart and their engine. So if I were to like put him into a CrossFit workout, right, put him in a boot and get him on an assault bike, right? Get him on the assault bike back buys and tries and chest press all day. And then just like hamstring work. Like there's definitely weight, like he can still get in really good shape while he's healing from, from the surgery too. And that's probably what he's going to be doing, especially if he wants to get back into fighting. Well, circle back there. So when you said that the brain remembers of him stepping on the ankle, is that kind of what you're talking about with like muscle memory? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, I never would have thought that. Sorry, you're, you're cutting out. Oh, am I cutting out now? Great. No, we're back. We're okay. back. Okay, yeah. I can hear you. So, yeah. So the brain, I'm just saying that the brain, uh, I lost my train of thought. There we go. So you said the brain remembers, I guess, how one would walk and stuff. So that's normally what your body will immediately try to do is like walk on that ankle as opposed to try to take it easy and recover for roughly six to eight weeks, like you said. And does that just come down to your muscle memory too? Just picking up a barbell and 
Yeah. Yeah. So um, the muscle memory kind of works in two different ways. Um, in, the, in the presence of trauma, what I wouldn't be surprised if the nervous system or if, if McGregor wasn't training the position that he originally got hurt in, anytime he would get into that position, he would automatically, he would probably feel a ton of pain or he would feel really skittish because like the mind kind of remembers the position of which he got injured in the first place. So we just got to kind of condition him to just be like, this position is still pretty safe and whatever happened at this instance, the tissues are healed and we're good to go. Um, but from a muscle memory standpoint, you're absolutely right. Like if you're training or you're doing activity for so long for a large portion of your life, you have like these, we, we call them like cortical maps, cortical pathways in which the body can actually follow. Um, they're kind of like patterns. Um, and so uh, what's going to be really cool is that Connor is going to be able to bounce back into training and striking and, and being MMA because he's been doing it for such a long time. So from like the technical aspect, he's probably going to be fine because it's like something that he's done for such a long time. Like that's his job as a fighter. Um, and it's really cool. And, um, and another kind of story about muscle memory, uh, I mean, with the pandemic, so I live out in here in California, the closest gym to me is about 30 minute drive. Wow. So even before the pandemic hit, I actually outfitted my own garage gym, but I didn't have room for a barbell. So I literally like, and I still have it now, my current garage gym, I have, uh, an 18 pound kettlebell, a 26, a 35, a 44, a 53 and a 70 pounder. So it's like all the primary colors of the kettlebell stuff, right? The heaviest weight I lifted over the past two years was a 70 pound kettlebell. Mm -hmm. And um, over the past couple of weeks, I was dropping into a couple of gyms as I was visiting family. And it's been such a long time since I touched the barbell, but because prior to the shutdown, everything that I was doing was very relevant to even just lifting. And that's one of the things that I loved about the, the, the concept and principles of like functional training, Yeah. because when it comes to functional training and like, it applies to everything that you do, regardless of like the medium that you're picking up, right? Like a deadlift, you're picking something up from the floor, whether it be a kettlebell, a barbell, a book off the ground. And so I try to live my life like from movement standpoint, where like everything that we do is just a reflection of what is done, say like at a gym or something like that. Yeah, I agree 100% with that. That uh, The biggest thing is the GPP, general physical preparedness, and exactly what you said that it's kind of what – I mean, I guess our stories could go uh, – how do I want to put this? So kind of after college, I wanted – I was looking for something else to keep me going, and that's how I kind of found CrossFit because at college, you know, I was just doing the, the glamour muscles and this whatever I could find off some website. and or I actually bought the, uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger bodybuilding book at that time, but – um, yeah, I was looking for something and then CrossFit introduced me to that. Nice. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, walk on your hands, turn upside down and do some pushups, handstand pushups. And then like the more I read about it, and then when I did my level one, it was like, oh, you know, you don't always have to, you know, pick up heavy weight. I mean, yeah, that's cool if you want to be the competitive side, be that type of athlete. But just as you age and get older, um, like you said, picking up a book off the ground, I don't want to be that guy that, oh, God, my back, you know, and yeah, that's one of the reasons I love it. Just being functionally prepared for anything, you know, and it's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like to talk about like, yeah, even as we age, like you don't necessarily have to like lift crazy weights. I remember uh, my, my first job as a physical therapist, like I got my license and that was when I started to pursue CrossFit a little bit more intense. Like I would do a lot of CrossFit means I workouts like at the like typical global gym by myself, but I started implementing like, even like the hip hinge or the deadlift, like into my day. So like when I would pick up like a pen in the clinic, I would stop brace hinge. My colleagues would be like, Ashley, what are you doing? Like, why are you picking, like, why are you picking up this thing like that? Like, and I said, it's just, it's a, it's a movement pattern that I got to train. And what ended up happening was like just teaching everyone how to pick things up like that. I mean, people's backs are so much more healthy because of the fact that they know how to prop know how to properly hinge at their hips. Right. Which is really important, especially when you're going to be picking something up from the floor and just like life in general. Of 
course. Well, I know you have your own podcast about uh, sciatica and stuff, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. That's you, when you said uh, your lower back right there, it just reminded me. But uh, what I wanted to ask you was that so with your practice, you're just not working, obviously. You're working with, are you working with all types of people? Not just, are you working with just athletes or, uh, yeah, what's your style, I guess, or your philosophy on that? My style. So the people who I treat, um, so I, so I spend a couple hours in the hospital, um, to kind of, uh, break up my week. Um, I'm someone who, uh, likes to be consistently challenged. So I spend a couple hours a week at a hospital to work with that specific population to help them walk and stay healthy so they can go home. The majority of the time that I spend are working with people either in person or virtually. So they're home dwelling um, for the most part. Uh, I would say it's about 50, 50, 50 percent of the people that I work with are athletic and they want to be active. Uh, CrossFit athletes, former CrossFit athletes, powerlifters as well. Um my goal is to get them back into training as quickly as possible. So we identify the pain, we fix the pain, teach them how to make it so that the pain doesn't come back and give them all the tools so that they don't ever need me. I like to say like, I've done my job correctly. If, if you fire me from my job, like that's, that's the goal. So like, that's, that's a good solid 50%. The other 50% of the people that I work with, um, are people who might not necessarily want to get into some sort of like say sport or like get back into exercising, but they just want to, they want to be able to live their life without pain. So this is actually the area where I call like the chronic, like people who are suffering from chronic pain, people who are suffering from chronic pain are folks who been experiencing a pain for 12 weeks longer the the reality is that tissues for most part like when when you have an injured tissue whether it be a broken bone or even like a disc or like even a sprain things should be healing in about 12 weeks Uh, and with that being the case in about 12 weeks if you're healed your pain should go away for some people if there's poor management of their pain because of the fact that the physical therapist or the doctor that they're working with isn't providing the necessary tools and ways for them to heal. The tissues might heal, but we go back on the concept of like muscle memory is that if it's not managed correctly, if the pain doesn't go down by week 12, there's something that actually happens up here in the brain. Not to say that people are crazy, (laughs) but it's really more so that the pain is actually being manifested up in this brain area And what we, what I am very proud of doing is actually help retraining and conditioning the brain to like revisit all these like scary movements that produce pain in the past and make it so that it's not scary to them anymore. And that they can, in fact, like do like, they can walk down the street without like being in agony because of the fact that like. I don't go in their head, but like having a conversation, having them move in a way that actually allows them to feel like in a safer position. So they don't experience the the pain alarms that people would often feel when they get injured in the first place. That that was kind of a mouthful, but I hope that kind of makes sense a little bit. It did. And now when you said you retrain the brain, so where do you start at retraining the brain? I mean, do you start to have somebody hurt their back? like picking up a book, as we just said, and do you just start him small as like bending it to lower depths at a time and then slowly get to a certain point to the floor? Or is that how you would start it? Or I'm interested in that. That's a very, it's a, you're very, very close to it. Um, okay. And so uh, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. And so you look at it where, um, let's say for example, like you hurt your back and then you're like slowly bending forward. So you're not just going to like shoot to the ground, right? You're going to be just testing the waters a little bit, like bending forward. It's like, Oh, is this okay? You stand back up. Um, that's, uh, considered what we call like graded, uh, imagery. So, or a graded movement. And so I'll, I'll start off where you let's look at the fitness wellness continuum right? Uh, in the CrossFit L1 manual, which is still by far one of my favorite, like pieces of content when it comes to like theory and application, right? you have this spectrum where you have like on one end is like fitness CrossFit games athlete, right? And you go towards the middle, like right here. And this is like 
just like normal, like being healthy. Right. And then you have this other end of the spectrum, which is like sickness and injury. Right. And so the thing is, is the fact that you can't go from like sickness and injury to just like jump right up to be a games athlete. Right. You have to like grade up and increase intensity. Sure. And that's exactly what we do. Like the, the way that um, is interesting, like, I consider my way of treating people and like working with clients as being simple. Um, I think one thing that people get caught up on is trying to make things complicated for the sake of making things complicated. If you can simplify things, it allows us to address pain in a single step manner. So my treatment methodology, my philosophy is you focus and capitalize on the positions, stretches, exercises, activities, you do more of those things that actually make you feel better. So say, for example, if you hurt your back and if you were to bend forward, your pain goes away, you should be doing more forward bends. However, on the contrary, if you hurt your back and you bend forward and your back actually hurts more, then you should actually be doing less forward bending. Mm -hmm. And so finding those positions that actually make you feel better and then those activities that actually increase your pain and make you feel worse. Those are the things that we would change. We would either completely eliminate them from your day uh, or we would modify it. So then that way you can avoid having to irritate yourself. Um, and so uh, that, that, that's how I see it. Um, it's a very simplified way. Um, now, granted that everyone's different, which is why it is important to be able to say like, Hey, Chris, I know you hurt your back, but like, what makes you feel better versus I know you have back pain. I'm going to give you these 13 different exercises yeah. that are actually going to make your back feel better. And you do them and you're like, I don't know, it's eight weeks and still nothing has changed. Um, I feel like it's a waste of time if you were to kind of just do like the shotgun approach. Like you take it one step at a time and before you know it, you're going to make progress pretty quickly. Mm. Um, yeah. So um so being able to take it one step at a time is going to be uh, one of the things that I encourage, especially with the people that I work with. And not to say that you can't do anything else, like not to say that if you hurt your back that you can't do something like CrossFit. It's just like if you hurt your back and you can't bend forward, all right, then probably for a period of time, we're going to avoid rowing. We're going to get you on an assault bike, which I'll tell you, I have, I have both a rower and an assault bike. I think I like the assault bike a lot more, but I love rowing. And um yeah, I uh, I, w I was doing a workout with my wife today. It was like a twenty minute AMRAP, and it was like either row, it, it was like row for calories, right? But we only have one rower, and my wife's like, "Hey, do you want to switch off?" And me being the the person who loves to just like destroy my engine as much as possible, I was like, "Give me the bike." Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, have you ever? Uh, my workout tonight was death by the assault bike. Have you ever done that? What? Oh, no, but I think I might die. But I feel, like, I feel like you would do really well with it if you're if you have the engine <laughs> for it. Uh, yeah, that I mean, assault bike is one of our big, biggest weaknesses in CrossFit. So uh, yeah, it was not a good time for me tonight. So ooh, quick, quick. Uh, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little hack on that. Um, and the hack, the only reason why I discovered the sack was today because someone like adjusted my bike seat because um, I have my neighbors who use my bike too. Um, if you slide the the chair like forward or back. Like, right. which is like slide it very different compared to what you're used to. You'll notice that you're going to get like an extra, like three RPMs with like less energy. On really? Yeah. Just about this. That's just anecdotal evidence because I, I felt like that today. I was like, this is amazing. Um, so just by sliding the seat back or forth a little bit and just getting it in the right, just a little bit. the sweet spot. Sweet spot. Yeah. Everyone is going to have that sweet spot, um, which is just going to allow them to like really rip it. And also like, I, I, I find like the heavier you, the heavier you are, the more you're going to be able to spin that flywheel anyway. I agree a hundred percent. We've, uh, I think there was a challenge. Um, I can't remember. It might've been a few months ago, but I forgot if it was, you had to rip so many calories and X amount of time and I'm forgetting it. The uh, logistics of it right now, but we had a heavier guy do it. And he was just ripping that bike, and I'm about I'm roughly weighed, but I float between 170 and 175, and I couldn't hold a candle to the guy. So man, it's like 
it's, it's good to be like somewhat heavier on the bike. And then also even, even just like having a little bit of weight, like on a rowing machine, did you see like, uh, I think like Brian Shaw, like back in like eight years ago, like rode a 500 in like 35 seconds. Yeah. I remember watching that video. That was nuts. It was uh, nuts. It's just, it's it just ridiculous. Crazy. There's just some people, I guess, you know, with levers and stuff, you know, I, I we have a lot of athletes at our gym that are six foot plus and just, you know, me, I'm five, six on a tall day and <laughs> <laughs> I get next to them. Yeah. I do everything I can, but they're still going to put me down a leg. So, but it happens. Um, once I get too much on the CrossFit uh, stuff. So I know you have your own uh, podcast. I fix your sciatica.com or I fix your sciatica podcast. Um, yeah, so website is ifixyoursciatica.com. I want it to be super simple. Um, and then the podcast is the, uh, fix your sciatica podcast. Um, yeah. So let's talk about that. I know the vague term. I know that, you know, um, it's basically pain around your sciatic nerve and it's using your lower back. And sometimes it can lead down to, I guess, just one of your legs or can it do both? I don't, I'm not sure about that. Um, you might have to talk to me like I'm a five-year-old. That's about all I know uh, as, as far as that goes. You you actually have the definition of sciatica pretty spot on. Okay. It's irritation of the sciatic nerve and your sciatic nerve, excuse me, um, starts um, actually up in your brain. So like your entire nervous system is one continuous unit. So you have, uh, you have your brain, and you have, uh, in like right above your ear, you have your somatosensory cortex, which is actually something that facilitates movement. Okay. And then right behind it, or, um, and then in that area also, you have your, um, your somatosensory cortex, which co- covers both, uh, your motor and then also your sensation. And they come together and they form at the base of your like brain stem. It's like your spinal cord, which then does run down your spine. Um, and your nerves, like your spinal cord is a series of nerves, a lot of, a lot of nerve cells in it, and it just extends all the way down and it exits out your spine. Um, L4, which falls between your L, um, L, yeah, your, your L4, L5, S1, S2, S3, those nerves are coming out of the spine and those nerves that come out, they actually come together and they form like this thick band and that thick band is the sciatic nerve. That's actually when those nerves come together. That's where that happens. That usually kind of happens around like, just like just North of your piriformis, maybe just, just underneath your piriformis. And then it extends all the way down the back of your leg. Um, and then once it gets to your knee, like the knee crease, okay. it actually splits into two nerves, which is going to be the tibial nerve and the fibular nerve, which actually supplies the, the sensation, the motor of like your lower leg, anything below your knee. And when it comes to sciatica, sciatica is actually just a description of where your pain is. So if you have pain in your low back, whether like if you have pain in your low back on like one side and extends maybe like to your butt, maybe to your hamstring or even like down your leg um, on the backside, on the backside of your thigh and then your entire lower leg below the knee, um, that would be an irritation of some part of the sciatic nerve. Um, and you could have it on both sides. If you have sciatica on both sides, if you have irritation of the sciatic nerve, um, in both legs, that's actually more an indicator that there's something happening at your spine. That's actually irritating both nerves on each side coming out. Um, for most people who experience one-sided sciatica, it could be some sort of asymmetry or behavior that could be happening. So, Really, the diagnosis of sciatica is just a description of where your pain is. Um, what's unfortunate is that people get so fixated on that. And then so they type in, like, what are the best things for sciatica? And there's a lot of different causes for sciatica pain in the first place. It, one, you could have like a pre existing trauma in your head, and then it would just present itself with irritation of your nerve in the back of your leg. Um, you can also have a kink in your neck, your upper back. Uh, a kink in your upper back or your uh, um, or your neck that can actually irritate the same nerve fibers that extend outside of your spine. So then you can actually feel like the sensation or pain going up and down your leg. Um, and then another thing is like, it could be a disc issue. Um, it could be arthritis. Um, 
But interestingly enough, um, when it comes to, to managing sciatica pain and just ensuring that you, like, you are feeling um, better from that is, is again, being very simple on, on trying to find the positions that actually bring your pain down. Um, so I often tell my clients or like when I'm walking clients through like a either in-person consultation or even like a virtual consultation, one of the many questions I'll ask is like, what positions make you feel the best? And then we would actually develop the treatment plan based on those positions that actually make them feel better. Yeah. I mean, yeah, take the less pain away. You said that one of the causes of it could be a bulging disc. Uh, would uh, degenerative disc disease also play into that too or or not? Uh, I have a coworker who, who I guess still has it and – he would always have to put a pillow when he was sitting down or uh, just ran or had to stand up a lot or just things like that. So I was just, I was kind of wanting to know more about that, but uh, if that would be part of it. Yeah. yeah um, with, with the uh, evolution of technology, um, what's really amazing is the fact that we can actually see inside the human body like pretty detailed, yeah. uh, which is so cool because it actually allows us to spot cancers, fractures, um, anything else that's going on with our internal organs. And we have stuff like MRIs and x-rays, particularly MRIs will actually be able to diagnose like herniated discs um, and degenerative discs. Mm-hmm. Um, what's really interesting. And, and for, for you, like, um, a spinal disc is kind of like uh, I like to call it like a jelly donut type of deal where like the connective tissue is like the donut itself. And the inside the disc is like the jelly. And when you're moving around, that jelly will actually move in various different directions. So usually when they say a herniated disc, that jelly goes in one specific direction, um, going past the limitations of whatever that connective tissue, whatever that donut is. Um, what's interesting is that it's theorized. Now, this is just a theory. So it's not the law, but it's theorized that that bulge would actually irritate either the spinal cord or the nerves that are coming out. Okay. Um, and that's okay. usually the major explanations you'll get when you get an MRI and you have a bulging disc being like this bulging disc is actually causing your sciatica pain. Um, what's really interesting about the disc is the fact that like herniated disc and degeneration is like, it, it's actually a normal process of aging. It's going to be moving. And what's even more interesting is the fact that there are, I think uh, one of the research articles I saw, it ranges between like 30% and like 80% of asymptomatic people, AKA 30 to 80, like of people who have no pain whatsoever, have like a herniated or bulging disc or degenerative disc. Okay. So then this actually brings up the big question on whether or not like that disc was the source of the pain first place but then all like so that that's that's like a big head scratcher um moment for the entire scientific community and so when someone says your pain is related to your disc um it might not be um but then the second part like from a degenerative disc standpoint like one of the reasons on why maybe the herniated disc or the degenerative disc and then just to clarify herniated disc is again with the jelly the contents of the jelly donut kind of get a little displaced. Degenerative discs means that um, there's probably some extra bony growth on the on the vertebrae. The disc actually starts to get a little bit smaller. Any changes in the spine can actually alter the mechanics of how that spine moves. So I'm more so convinced that any sort of pain related to like a herniated disc or say the degenerative disc is really more so related to the altered biomechanics of how the spine moves rather than the actual contents of that disc or the structure itself. Um, And that's supported by the fact that people who don't have any pain have either herniated disc or bulging disc. I've actually would love um, now, if I, if I lied saying that I was in pain 
to get an MRI, that's medical fraud. And that's not something I'm going to do. Right. <laughs> but I would always be really interested to have my spine evaluated. Like, um, I would love to get it x-rayed, but x-rays are a ton of radiation. And so that's actually one of the reasons why x-rays of your hips is like the last resort, because that's where all like people's reproductive organs are. And you're like, if you do an x-ray of the hip, you're just shooting x-rays into all the reproductive organs. But I would love to get an MRI to see what my back looks like. Cause I wouldn't be surprised that I have a couple of herniated discs and some arthritis in there. Same thing with your shoulders and your neck too. Um, as like, kind of like another thing being like, yeah, my body's a little broken down as well, but I'm not in pain. And what separates me who has like arthritis in their back and isn't in pain compared to someone who does is just being able to, is my ability to find the positions that make me feel the best and avoiding the positions or modifying the positions that actually caused me to be in more pain in the first place. Hmm. That's interesting. You said that about x-rays. So if I was given a choice, should I always take an MRI over an x-ray? I would avoid going from a, uh, I'm, I'm going to stay away from superlatives like that, like always and never. Okay. Um, okay. Um, and also like my, my knowledge, um, I just know the risks uh, involved with x-rays. So I can't necessarily, recommend one or the other um ultimately it's going to get a doctor that's going to be able to uh the, the md the, the orthopedic the spine doc who's going to be able to um prescribe the mri or the x-ray um i think in some countries physical therapists can actually prescribe medical imaging which is pretty cool um but that unfortunately that's not something that i'm trained in Gotcha. Well, I got a couple thoughts there that I, hopefully I don't forget, but uh, we'll go in on that. So, I mean, what do you have in your tool bag? I know a lot of people use, uh, uh, you know, like my power dot for muscle recovery and uh, there's hyper, I think hyper ice things. I mean, what would you, I mean, is there anything special you got going on? That's the only ones I really know, but is there anything special you got going on that you would use on your clients and something cool I don't know about? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, um, I actually have a hyper ice for myself, yeah. um, which I love because one vibration, actually the, the, there's a lot of research on like vibration actually improves muscle, um, increases blood flow. Um, and when you have increased blood flow, you can flush out all the toxins, you flush out all the byproducts of the cellular metabolism, which is how cells actually function. Um, which allows the muscles to move a little bit better. And then the vibration actually calms down the nervous system. So I love using, excuse me, something like a hyperice to kind of just like calm the body down. It's like a post-workout recovery. Okay. Um, I'm a huge fan of lacrosse balls. Mm-hmm. Um, Kelly really inspired me on using lacrosse balls and foam rollers um, because prior to that, it was like in the clinic, you would either massage someone and you would stretch them. But then that means that that person would have to come in to see you to get massaged and stretched every time. And I didn't love that. And then, um, so I love lacrosse balls, foam rollers. Um, I love the use of bands, man, like using bands to just like help people get put into place. Um, even like wrapping a band around your hip to like emphasize a good solid hip stretch. Like that's one of the things that I love doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another tool, um, I'll be honest, like power dot is great. Um, I've used the Mark pro. I actually have a Mark pro for myself. It's kind of like a power dot, but like you're hooked up to wires. I like to use that for muscle recovery. Um, and then, one of the things I love, like from a toolbox standpoint, um, it's like a figurative tool. It's not like a physical tool, but like, it's just like focusing on breathing, like focusing on breathing. You'll be amazed by how much you can actually focus and reducing your stress, improving your athletic performance. by just having a better breathing pattern. I think it's, um, Brian McKenzie, uh, who's all about nasal breathing in the CrossFit world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like that in itself, like when you breathe through your nose, you downregulate your nervous system. You actually allow your body to move much more efficiently. And then also like, if you ever like did a workout breathing through your nose, it's really hard. So it also kind of like heightens your mental toughness as well. Cause you can like, you know, if you're doing a 20 minute workout, you're breathing through your nose for the first 12 minutes and you're like dying. And all of a sudden you like open up your mouth to start mouth breathing. 
And then like the next eight minutes, you're just crushing it. So it's kind of like, I like to talk, I like to tell people about um, like the concept of like last resorts, like pushing, pushing the NOS in the, in the spirit of uh, a fast and furious nine, right? F9, <laughs> but like Woo! pretty much. Um, have you seen that movie? Yeah, by the way? I went and saw it was the last weekend, the other weekend. Yeah, I liked it. <laughs> It was. I have to. I have to. Why I missed like the first the the two films preceding F nine, so I have to get caught up. I geek out over those movies, man. For some reason, yeah, I love them. (laughs) I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. um, And so, like, I'm going to use an example. Um, When we're deadlifting, yeah. If you look at it, it's like most people when we're deadlifting, like you're looking up like that's the old school way, right? You arch and you look up to make sure that your back stays flat. In fact, you actually arch a little bit more. Sure. The thing is the fact that like, if you maintain a neutral spot, if you tuck your chin, right. And you, I, I like to teach people like when they're deadlifting to like take a softball and put it between their chin and their chest. So then that way they have a neutral spine. And the thing is, is the fact that you actually develop a lot more force. You create a lot more tension in your body. But the thing is, like the mo- like once you get closer to those higher percentages, you're going to end up arching in the first, but like the next step, because like that's the last resort, right? And so you're focused, you're fighting, fighting, fighting. You go here and you get the last couple inches off the ground to finish your pole. But the thing is, if you're already arched to begin with, you have nowhere else to go. And so like that, that is technically, yeah, you know, you, your head's going to fall off. Right. Yeah. So like that is technically your NOS. Right? You can't, you can't like push not, well, we know the effects of pushing NOS twice, right? You go to the first fast and furious, but you're going to blow your engine out. Right. So that's, that's the, that's the thing. Right. Or, or that, I, I mean, no, I'm not right, a serious, right. yeah, but that's right. how I was. Just, yeah. Right? yeah. So it's like you, you can only press NOS once like that's and, and that's the the big thing it's the same thing with mouth like nasal breathing and mouth breathing like if you're just mouth breathing the entire time you have no other resort to turn to and that's why nasal breathing is really helpful from like a performance standpoint but also even from like a down regulation and like stress management standpoint like when people are stressed like they hold their breath and it's and it just like compiles on and then even if you just like do nasal breathing, like it's just going to calm everything down. So your body's like not as fired up. I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I'm currently, sorry folks. If I, I know I talked about this probably on another podcast, but I'm currently reading, uh, so <laughs> if I'm talking about it again. I'm sorry. Uh, it's a book by James Nestor and it's called breathe or breath, breathe. And have you read it? Breathe. Yeah. And he's actually it's so good. Yeah. He talks about, I'm probably roughly halfway through it. And he's actually talking the same. Like he even used the same examples you did. I think it was in the fifties that, Coaches would make their athletes put water in their mouth and run around the track, and so they would have to breathe out through their noses. And just the there's so many positives yeah. to breathing through your nose as opposed to you know mouth breathing. It made me completely rethink, you know, just sitting at my desk when I'm at work or even trying. I even try to do a workout like you said, just breathing through my nose, and it's extremely tough. And, but there's it's so yeah, hard. Yeah, so hard. But this is okay. There's gonna be a lot of positive benefits if I keep doing this. So I'm working on it. It's not for sure, but I'm working on it. Well, you want to know, and you want to know a sport that you can't necessarily like nasal breathe in um, swimming. That's right. Because like you're get get water in your nose, <laughs> man. It's, it's terrible. I've done it plenty of times. It's the worst feeling. So is that exception to the rule, swimmers? That you should always. But most people should be I breathing through their I nose. Mean, is that that's that's my that's yours. That's my exception. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna create that exception. I mean, there's <laughs> usually rule or exceptions to all the rules, I guess. So. But uh, had another thought. I wanted to circle back, going back to sci- uh, the sciatica. That do you think, and talk about how you would help somebody and the pains or the causes of you know uh, sciatica. Is that do you think diet and stress play a not only you know would play a part into a person's uh, pain, I guess. A hundred percent. I think. I think. Um, so here's an interesting thing about nutrition. If you want to lose weight, like you can't out exercise a poor diet, right? And uh-huh. I think, like, and I a hundred percent agree with that. I think one of the challenges is 
So managing stress, having a good diet and having good nutrition habits isn't going to cure you of your sciatica, but it will facilitate the healing process and accelerate that more because you're going to be in a much better position to heal and uh, in a much better position to recover. Because if you're eating something super processed, your body's already going through some sort of inflammation as it is. Mm-hmm. And pain is often associated with inflammation. And so if your body is going through long bouts of inflammation, long bouts of stress, I like to think about that. Those are kind of like the invisible factors that actually influence pain sensitivity. It's kind of like, I, I often tell people like, do you, are you, uh, you, you play any music? Like you, you're like play electric guitar or anything like that. Uh, in college, I had a buddy who tried to teach me acoustic guitar, but uh, he was a pretty bad teacher and it didn't really work out. Well, that's what I say. Cause <laughs> I mean, long story short, like he would get mad because I couldn't get my fingers correctly. He would just like take my hand and force it. Yeah, and, and I was like, okay, dude, I can't do this. Maybe, maybe another time. So no, I, I can't. I can't. It's so hard. But um, but I think you might still actually know this analogy. But like, so on a so like electric guitars, right? Um, you strum, it's like a really loud sound, but then there's this button that's like the distortion pedal. That right. like you step on the distortion pedal and just goes wow wow. That's like that's what makes things metal and rock the way that gets modulated is something called the gain and so if you turn the gain up spelled g-a-i-n right you're going to get a lot of reverberation it's going to be like super heavy metal but if you turn the gain really like really far down it's going to be just playing like a loud guitar and what inflammation does it turns the gain up so you just hear this like reverberate or you feel this reverberating system or like symptom and so if you can, I'm going to, I'm going to use the, the cross level one where it's like vegetables, lean proteins, nuts and seeds. So paleo, paleo, minimally processed. Like you want to eat good quality foods. So then that way you're going to be in a position to heal. And then also what's cool about that is that that actually translates on over to even just stress management in general, because if you're just like constantly tired and worn out, like the first thing that you're probably going to turn to is going to be like a sugary drink, caffeine, plus sugar, plus all these chemicals. I was a big monster energy drinker for a long period of time because I flavor. It was like monster energy, diet, Dr. Pepper. And it was great. I would get a burst of energy, but then I would just crash because it was just like putting just garbage in my body. But then um, from there, like, I love drinking coffee. I actually like drinking coffee as like a beverage of enjoyment versus drinking it for the caffeine. Mm-hmm. But the great news is that if you're eating well, you don't need those extra caffeine boosts because of the fact that your body isn't as stressed out. Um, and as a result, because you're not as stressed out, you're not as tired, you're not as beaten up, you're going to be less sensitive to, to your pain, um, which is a good thing. It facilitates healing. That's interesting. Um, you know, a lot of people don't think they could give up caffeine just because of, I guess, what they think it's doing for their body, which, you know, I'm a coffee drinker every morning, but, you know, roughly two cups a day. And, you know, and I, there was a point in college and stuff, I was drinking those monster energies. Those white ones hit different, man. The serious sugar ones, man, I crush those. But anyway, uh, but I guess my point is what I'm getting is that, that I've heard that you know, you think your body needs the caffeine, but it really doesn't is what you just said. And, uh, some friends and I were talking tonight at the gym that we were wondering if we could actually give caffeine up for a month just to see if we could see any different changes into our, not only to our physical or I guess the way we're feeling physically, but also mentally. And just because I think caffeine does act as a, could act as a suppressor of the pain. I don't know if that's true or not, but during workouts, but um, that's what one guy said. So, and I was like, eh, it kind of sounds right. We'll go with that. Sorry, sorry, folks. Coffee is my favorite pre workout. Coffee is my favorite pre workout. Um, coffee, black, like, I have to time it correctly so I don't have to go to the bathroom mid workout, right? But, uh, <laughs> but it's it's what gets me, it gets me fired up. Um, I used to take all those pre workouts, like, you go to the supplement store and just crush pre-workouts at like four o'clock in the afternoon and you like crush a workout and you can't sleep for the rest of the night. But, but now I, I work out early in the morning. So it's like a good way to get things started. Do you usually recommend supplements to your clients if, or do they even ask or is that, or even, even for your own self, you can talk a little bit about that if you want. 
I, I'm a huge fan for myself. I like taking powdered magnesium. It kind of helps kind of calm the nerves and everything. It's like really, it's, I like to use it for me personally. I don't recommend supplements for other people. Um, the big reason why is the fact that the supplement industry is just very unregulated and I wouldn't want to recommend something that isn't a regulated product or, or something like that. And, um, just from a safety standpoint as well. So, um, but I, I, when people ask about supplements, I usually just say like, find whatever works best for you or like speak with your doctor or, um, acupuncturists actually do a very, like have a very good knowledge on the concept of implementing supplements into the body. And they have their own, um, system in which they evaluate people. And then based on their evaluation, they would say like, these are the supplements or these are the vitamins that, that they would recommend. I think it, that's a really cool thing. So if anyone ever wanted to get some sort of supplement recommendation, I would say like, talk to your acupuncturist first, or even like go and speak with an acupuncturist. You're, you're, you're gonna, it's really opening. Yeah. It's interesting. I've never heard of somebody recommending their acupuncturist to Oh my goodness. If you haven't done acupuncture, I highly recommend that. I've never um, have. I never have. It's, it's great. You, you also have to find the right person. Um, like who's actually but, good at it. You mean just to, yeah, you have, to, um, I think, well, also this is going to be for any sort of professional, like you have to have a good feeling about them. Um, you have to go with your gut feeling. You have to like, whether it be a, a fitness coach, a physical therapist, you want to be like, if you're, if you're going to someone for a specific service, you have to feel good about it. Like your gut has to say, yeah, I feel confident this person is going to do their job mm-hmm. because if you hire them and you don't believe that they will the effect, like, doesn't matter how smart they are, or how good they are at their job if you don't have that trust, then your, your, your effect, the effect of whatever they're providing for you um, is going to be blunted because of the fact that you're not fully bought in um, into that. Yeah. I mean, that's, I'm glad you said it like that just because, you know, I've been to a few doctors and you, you always can say like, Oh, I had a good experience here. This guy has no clue what he's talking about or, and not even, you know, I mean, it's just in general, but it's, I guess it's like in every profession, there's going to be good, you know, good ones and there's going to be bad ones. I mean, even with me and my job, I mean, probably that's the way it goes. So, yeah. um, so I, I know we're getting short on time here, but, uh, I got a couple more questions for you. So why did you choose to call your podcast, you know, fix your sciatica? Uh, is that just something that you just piques your interest? Is that part of the body and working with clients that way? Or is it, yeah. How'd that come about? Um, I think a big part of it is just the simplicity aspect of it. There's so many people who are suffering from sciatica pain and there are so many resources out there and you can go to physical therapy clinics, you can go to physical therapy websites and blogs, but they're also going to have a whole bunch of articles about neck pain, ankle pain, like all these other things. And so it can get confusing and challenging for people to find the necessary resources. So I created the Fixer Sciatica podcast to make it a centralized location for people to find resources specifically to sciatica. Like my goal is to make it as simple as possible for people to get the information that they need so they can live their life free of sciatica pain. I get that hundred percent. So how do you keep up to date with, I mean, I always when I'm talking with people who are working in like registered dietitians or physical therapists as yourself, how do you keep up? I mean, I'm always, I, I can never keep up with the newest, you know, technology or newest art scientific articles that are coming out. How do you keep up with uh, your information and try to stay up to date with, you know, all the new science, I guess. So uh, it can for sure be very overwhelming with like all the research that comes out. Um, one thing that I like to do is I'll search for like whatever specific technique or like technology, whatever I'll, I'll go into Google and I'll type that term uh, NCBI, which is, I forgot the revision, what it means, but that, that actually like pops up all the scientific research articles. Okay. And then once I get those articles, if it's a systematic review, um, that's the highest level of evidence because it takes all the research for that specific topic and grades everything. That's the highest. Um, and then the next one that you actually want to look at is a randomized controlled trial, because that's actually a really good thing too. They're using the scientific method. Um, and I'll look at those two and then I'll also look at the data publication. Ideally, I would like to get like, look at the research that's within 10 years because it takes some time for these articles to be published and everything like that. So those are my criteria. And then from there, I'll actually just read the abstracts. I'll read the abstract and I'll read the 
discuss the conclusion. Okay. Um, because the data, it, it, it gets a lot. And I get the, um, I get the NSCA like monthly journals and it's a lot of articles and I'll just like scroll through and be like, Same okay, what are these articles that like look interesting to me? Okay. Yeah. So just kind of whatever piques your interest and that what you think would benefit you. I get that hundred percent. Yeah. Some of those yeah. journals that I've read, I was like, how can anybody read all of these? I mean, yeah, yeah. the information is so small. Even the, the fonts. Abstracts. That's yeah. the, that's the big thing. That's a secret, um, huh? Abstract conclusions. Yeah, well, and, and usually those, um, like all that data that like you're compiling is really more so if you're trying to like compile your own research article. So like that's for the people who are in research to really show their work. Um, and so, yeah, it's just like, I get easily overwhelmed. So let me just like simplify things as much as yeah, possible. Like I said, like, I don't blame you one bit cause I feel bad for people in your profession and also <laughs> nutritionists. Like, how do you keep up? Just, I don't know. Uh, one last question for you. I see you got a tattoo on your right arm, man. Uh, yeah, what is that? I, I thought it looked pretty badass. The dragon. Um, it's a uh, yeah, dragon that green eyes extends all the way down. Um, one day, I said to my wife, I said, "Hey, I would really love to get a tattoo sleeve of a dragon." And my wife said, "Cool, go for it." And I looked at, her, I was like, "Are you, are you serious?" She said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then, so I went to go find that. Um, and the artist who did this is a good friend of mine, uh, Christian Massat of uh, Roses and Rebels in uh, Jersey City, New Jersey. Oh, I love it, man. It looks good. I've, I have zero yeah. tattoos, but I'm right now um, doing my scouting report, trying to figure out what's, what, what I want to do. So I, do, I know I want to do a half sleeve, so I have somewhere to use. So. The, the worst part is just like the healing part of it. Like okay. the, getting the tattoo, I don't like sitting through stuff, so like I get antsy. Yeah. You have to like slather like the stuff on it. And this the worst. I, I it's the worst feeling. <laughs> Got you. Um, well, maybe sooner than later I'll be doing that going down that road. I do really want to do it hopefully by the end of this year. So that's one of my goals. So um well anyway, all right. So we'll respect your time. Um before we get off here, uh appreciate you doing this, Dr. Ashley Mack. You are awesome. This was a great conversation. Um if anybody who wants to come find you or look up more information on you? How do they do that? Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff, all the socials. Yeah. So you can check me out. Uh, my website, ifixyoursciatica.com. Um, same, it's the same Instagram handle. And then you can also shoot me an email info at ifixyoursciatica.com. Shoot me any questions. Nice. All right. Again, thank you again. This is a great conversation. I really enjoyed this. Thanks, Chris. All right. Bye folks. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.